Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. We use gender as a lens to understand power and oppression, teach feminism, and decolonize hearts and minds one story at a time. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. Our guest today is James Powell, a soon-to-be social worker and practicing therapist at the New York City Counseling Practice. James believes that healing and self-actualization result from a lifelong commitment to self-reflection, a constant pursuit of increasing congruency between one's values and behavior. Our psychotherapeutic practice is rooted in Buddhism, 12-step philosophy, shamanic spirituality, humanistic psychology, and psychodynamic theory. James works with clients who have experienced loss, interpersonal violence, and addiction. And today we'll be speaking with James about her practice and how her identity and experiences informs her work as a practitioner helping others engaged in similar struggles and journeys. Welcome, James. Hi. Thank you for being on our show. Oh, yes. I'm excited. So I'd love to hear about how you started to become interested in social work and become a therapist. I know you're in school now, but um, the journey is always almost coming to an end. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, man. I feel like my life up to this point has been a, about getting me here, about becoming um, a clinician, a social worker, Um so a uh, healer is my vocation and psychotherapist is my profession. So being a healer is being expressed through that channel. I heard the call to be a healer when I was four. I had my first spiritual experience at the age of four. And um, I'll never forget that moment, but I, it has taken, um, it took about... I don't know, 22 years to discover what that meant. Um, and so I was a precocious child and I was very much interested in the esoteric arts and spirituality and began my spiritual practice around the age of 13. And at that same time, I was also an academic elitist snob and I thought I would become an attorney. And so I studied, I had a broad education in the liberal arts, and I studied history and political science. And so I became involved in a relationship that led to interpersonal violence. Also, my upbringing very much groomed me to enter that relationship. It was a whole other form of um, domestic abuse um, in childhood and in my teenage years from mainly emotional and verbal abuse. And then so I met a man who I became involved with around the age of like 19. And uh, yeah, it was a domestic violence situation. And um, my active addiction took off around that time in my life. And so when I went into treatment, I kept hearing the refrain of, you know, you're really gifted, um, like interpersonally gifted and relationally gifted. And um, you have a certain emotional intelligence. I think you would be an excellent therapist. And this was a chorus I heard sung to me my whole life, really. Um, But I really didn't acknowledge it because I was going to be an attorney and I was going to work at the UN and all of that. And so it really took um, 
having these continuous traumas in my life and becoming the wounded healer, I, literally my life path, I would say, um, was about getting me to become a healer. Um, and so then through my own recovery journey, I started to unpack that more and discovered um, the meaning of that initial call when I was four. And so it led me to social work. I went to my therapist and I said, I succumbed. I concede. I think I'm meant to be a therapist. And she was like, I'm going to tell you a secret and you will uncover it for yourself. And I was like, what's that? And she was like, you are an innate social worker. And so, um, I discovered, you know, the differences between social work and mental, uh, mental health, psychology, and um, marriage and family therapist, and I realized pretty emphatically, yes, indeed, I am a social worker, and so here I am. Can you share with our audience what the differences are and what gravitated you toward social work? Yes. Um, the, I would say the cardinal difference is a bent toward social justice, and really looking at problems not within people it's locating the problems within societal structures i didn't realize that yeah i feel like there are some social workers that i know who do not have that systemic perspective absolutely is that that something that differs by each social social work grad school is every Mm -hmm. social work grad school Mm -hmm. do they overtly say that social justice is part of the mission so i would say there are some schools that lead with that more than others. Hunter is a great example of that. Hunter, I think, is pretty famous for its social justice orientation. I would say, unfortunately, I love NYU. NYU is where I attend. Um, I knew I belonged at NYU. They are uh, famous for their for being a more quote unquote clinical school. I wouldn't say that that is an unfair assessment. Um, I also don't necessarily think it's entirely negative either. I think you know we're being heavily scrutinized right now as a school. I I think that inquiry is um, necessary. Um, and hopefully they will make some changes within their systemic structure and start becoming more, a little more social leaning, social justice leaning than what they have been in the past. I will say to be fair, I don't know that it's just a school issue, um, like an institutional issue so much as there are people that enter social work school with the primary objective of just being psychotherapists. There's a multitude of reasons for that. Like me, for example, it's, it's choosing social work is an easier path to become a psychotherapist rather than a psychologist. I would have to almost start from the ground up again. And so I think some people are like, oh, okay, two-year master program. I don't have to go four years back to get a psychology BA. I don't have to do a master's and then a PhD in order to hang, you know, a um, marquee outside my door, um, allowing me to clinically treat others. So I think there's some people that have that mindset and that are like, okay, fastest route to becoming a mental health clinician. Would you say that social work uh, grad school in terms of its academics prepares the practitioners more broadly for issues that come up in their practice, clinical issues mm-hmm. versus psychologists or mm-hmm. psychiatrists? Yeah, so I, I can't, I, I don't know those 
other two domains as well as my own. Um, I would say that any schooling really is going to be broad. <laughs> it's hard to get fit it all in, you know, and it's hard to fit in how to be a phenomenal clinician within two years. There's just no way to do that. And to be honest and to be fair with psychology programs, many uh, schools advertise actually if you want to um, be more clinically driven, if you want to treat people like one on one direct practice, please do not apply to our school. So psychology right now, and I don't know how far back this can be dated. I should ask my stepdad. He is a psychologist um, and at a university in academia, but um, that's primarily what they want psychologists to do, to stay within academia or to stay within a lab and research. Um, They're not really interested in investing in clinicians. That's really being filtered down more to marriage and family therapists, social workers, and mental health therapists. A lot of, there's a misconception for most, for the lay person that when they go to an office to sit down one-on-one with a professional, that they are a psychologist or that's that is considered like the standard. Most people are surprised that the majority of those mental health professionals that they're seeing are social workers. Mm. Yeah, I think um, amongst the people who I've interviewed who've had access to clinicians, a lot of them have been working with social workers Mm -hmm. because the survivors, at least, if they are dealing with trauma or require domestic violence expertise, doesn't seem like psychologists yeah. um, necessarily have that. It usually, usually falls within social workers because they're getting trained through an agency or something like that. Yeah. And I also think, I mean, I don't know exactly on a systems level why there's been a, a change as far as what professional domain is treating what, but I feel like it's a great gift for a person to sit with a social worker because another feature that sets us apart from others is that we operate from a biopsychosocial perspective. So again, when we're trying to understand a problem for an individual, we're looking at a person's biological elements, psychological elements, and where they are socially located in the society that they're in, um, also what their current context is and what their, and what the arc of their context has been really, how does that inform a problem? How does that inform who they are, how they conceive of themselves? I would think from what you described that every therapist should have that approach. (laughs) Yes. Yes. And many do. I will say my best friend who works in addiction, um, hi Alicia, if you're hearing this, um, she, when, when when we confer as colleagues, um, I have heard her talk about the biopsychosocial, and she was trained as a mental health therapist. And so I don't know if that school provided that um, sort of training, and so they or if the uh, treatment center she works for operates through that lens. And I know there's a bunch of bunch of social workers um, at that treatment center, so I don't know how she, that wiggled its way into her lexicon and then her practice, but it did. And so it's made me curious as to when I heard her say that, like, oh, I wonder what other clinicians outside of social work are thinking that way. The office that you currently practice, Mm -hmm. New York City Counseling, on the website, they talk about distinguishing between when someone might need counseling versus when someone might need coaching. Yes. And uh, I'm wondering if you could talk 
us through the differences and help some help a listener identify which is the best route for that person? Okay, that's a great question. So I would say I'm a pauser when I speak. So if there's a delay, it's it's just I'm an internal processor. I should say that to the listening audience. Um, I would say for life coaching, my understanding, and again, I feel badly, I, might, I don't want to speak ill of any profession. My understanding for life coaching is that they are considered the expert and they're going to help you with tools to master a problem or to bring something into, to manifest something that you're hoping to have in your life, where a therapist is, a, a, I would say a good therapist, a proper therapist, um, does not consider themselves the expert, but that you are the expert of your own life and that it's an egalitarian relationship. It's a relationship in which you both are exploring together hand in hand, um, what the problem is or problems and, um, and what you're doing well to tackle those problems and what maybe you're not doing so well and what's getting in the way of that and how you both together can discover that. Um, I would, I basically call myself as a therapist, a lantern holder. I'm not over here forcing someone's path. Um, I believe their path is already laid out and I just get the great privilege and honor to walk beside them and hold a lantern so that they can see their way better. So as far as picking what it is that you want, if you know, a life coach is almost like a self-help book in human form. What the website says specifically is, if you're happy and healthy, but feel you have stalled and want to make a change, coaching, a variation of counseling, can help you to establish goals and encourage you in your progress while still holding you accountable. Mm -hmm. So I guess my question is, if people, first of all, happy and healthy is so subjective. And I think we're, as a society, we're so hard on ourselves that I don't know anyone would say that we're all happy and healthy. Mm I don't know. Maybe there are people. And fair, like I personally believe that happiness is a juvenile pursuit mm-hmm. and a whole spectrum of feelings. Based on that that definition, then wouldn't wouldn't it be almost impossible for people to to even choose the coaching route if they are very hard on themselves? They're going to gravitate towards therapy. On the other hand, if they have a not necessarily inflated sense of self, but if they have a um, maybe denial or avoidance of their situation and they want to think that they're happy, mm-hmm. then they're going to be avoid avoiding therapy as an yes. option when they may actually need it. Yes, yes. Um, you know, and coaching might just be more more of a palatable approach of getting them in the door as well, and through. I don't know who we have in the office right now that is a life coach. Every All of my colleagues are therapists. I do know that our office administrator is a life coach. Um, so she might be the one that is providing that service. Um, to be honest, if somebody were just coming in for life coaching, I don't even know who to refer them to in the office. Yeah, I think it was just yeah. helping to distinguish for people who are coming if it was appropriate for them. To to seek therapy. Yes. Yeah. So what about the, uh, the kinds of challenges that your clients tend to come to you for? Um, you have a whole list of, 
of issues from grief and loss to interpersonal violence, addiction, etc. Given that this podcast is about gender-based violence, I'm really interested in the clients that you're working with that have some sort of experience of violence or abuse, whether it's physical, emotional, what's whatever. Mm-hmm. And at what point do they come to you? Is it like during crisis? Is it after crisis? Is it multiple years yeah. um, where they've had a chance to process it? And and what are the impetuses or catalysts for for therapy in those cases? Okay, um, so I would say for sure that it's after crisis um we're a facility that we don't we don't see clients who are at high risk per se um of course i have currently i'm seeing clients that have some suicidal ideation and so there's always safety assessment and planning and um but somebody who is um like an act of psychosis or um, in crisis, um, those would be referred out. This is mainly a practice that somebody has had an experience or an encounter recently or um, you know, several years ago that is stable enough to really do the exploratory work, um, to really begin healing from that rather than just putting out the fires of like, uh, I can't get out of bed. I don't, um, that are really paralyzed by grief, fear, and panic and terror. Um, that would demand a higher level of care. So they're functional in they're their functional. lives. Yes. They have jobs and sustain yes. themselves. Yes. And like, and functionality is also kind of relative too. I mean, I think we're all like, am I functioning? Um, but yes, that they're being able to maintain a job or even if they're in a precarious place where, you know, they've missed a lot of work or, um, they're, again, there's some suicidal ideation being expressed. Um, that doesn't necessarily connote like extreme higher level of care that's needed or warranted, but just, uh, they can still be seen in that office and um, get them at a m- more functional level. These clients that are that have had these experiences, are they also actively involved in relationships with people who perpetrated those incidents in their lives? Or are they over, in other words, or are they trying to manage those relationships still? Yes. So currently I do not have any clients that are in the middle of harm. Okay, and and, and and by that I mean also like you may have an ex-husband um, who right. is still in your life because you share a child um, or a parent who you have sporadic contact with. And even on the holidays, you have to, you know, you have to negotiate like whether you're going to visit and have contact or not. My colleagues are seeing clients that currently are in those situations. Personally, I don't have any clients right now that are in the middle of that. So that's great. And they have yeah. that. Do you, do you feel like it, it makes a difference in the work that you do with them, that it creates that openness and to do work more freely versus being kind of stuck in the emotion of it? Yeah. When we're not talking about logistics and like day to day, again, it's the putting out the fires, like trying to just manage, okay, how do we get to work or how do we pick up the kids from school safely um uh when those are not being dealt with when those situations are put to bed then we're able to do like the deeper work the deeper psychodynamic work of like relational patterning 
And what do you find is effective or what are some of the factors that contribute to healing, as you say? How can you tell that there's healing? Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. The first things that come to mind is safety, a sense of safety within the relationship. You know, for any therapist that might be listening to the podcast, I'm going to say something really trite and it's going to be embarrassing, but the relationship really is curative. Like that's what we say, that the relationship, the therapeutic dyad is the curative element in the room, no matter what the problem is. So especially when there's been interpersonal trauma of any kind, and most trauma is interpersonal, to be honest, life is inherently traumatic and our relationships tend to be the sites of trauma and perpetuate trauma, but they can also be the sites of deep rewarding healing. And so the office, the container, um, the therapeutic container can be um, the the healing agent itself. So what has to happen for the healing to be midwifed is safety. Safety first and foremost. The client has to feel safe. And I use the word client. A lot of people use patient, I think, because we revere the medical model in this country. But um, my clients are not sick. They're not sick people. They're not coming for some disease that I am curing them of. Um, They are quite equipped to heal themselves. I'm just helping facilitate that process. So, yeah, so safety, um, because they feel unconditional positive regard for me. They feel respect for me. Trust, just an inherent trust that I see them as a human. Um, I don't see them as a walking wound or problem. And then uh, psychoeducation, especially when it comes to trauma. Um, Psychoeducation is a big piece normalizing. Um, through that psychoeducation saying, oh yes, that makes sense to me. I I feel like that's a constant refrain of mine and I wish I had another, but saying, oh yes, that makes sense to me and here's why is incredibly normalizing and validating for a person and it makes them feel quote unquote less crazy. And what kinds of shifts do you, or I guess you can't really see because you're only in a therapeutic setting, but Mm -hmm. do they report back Oh, um, of of um, your clients making changes in their lives. Yeah, and, and a shift can happen within the room. Uh, you know, another <laughs> cliche thing to say is the body keeps the score. And I will watch my clients breathing. I will hear their breathing shift within the room. Um, when, when something's been viscerally validated for a person you can notice their color change. They sit differently. Um, again, they breathe differently. They give you a deeper gaze. You, it's a bodily experience. Everything, we're sensing, feeling vessels. So um, when, when somebody says something to you that connects and validates you, you can't help if you're being honest and fully engaged in the room for your body to take that in and process that before the mind does. And so you see it in vivo with the client, like something subtly shifted for that person and insight was gleaned. And then yes, hopefully that carries out then into their behavior and in their actions and they do report back and it's subtle, there's small changes. We're talking incremental process, just testing things out is an act of bravery for people. So they'll say, yeah, you know, I I decided to 
give my hand at Twitter or not Twitter, Tinder, or I'm trying to date again. Or I have this one client who was so severely traumatized um, that I actually came to her home instead of her coming to me. I was doing home visits and um, she was suicidal and she has not expressed any ideation in over a year. She was not doing anything social. She now is a member of a writing group, goes outside of her home regularly. She's getting haircuts. She was like having trouble bathing on a regular basis. So yes, these are the concrete, tangible results, but that took months, you know, of, of just showing up to her, just being consistent. It sounds pretty unusual for you to be making house calls. Yeah, it's not actually that unusual. Really? Unusual For social workers, absolutely oh, not. Wow. There's a lot of house calls that get made. Yeah, I would say maybe in private practice, it's uh, not. I, this was not affiliated with the place that I'm currently at. But yeah, within agencies, um, house calls are a thing. And I like what you said about uh, earlier. You re- refer to your clients not as patients, but clients because they're not sick. And I think, you know, since you're working with a lot of clients who have trauma, Mm -hmm. trauma, I think is misunderstood and mischaracterized as an illness instead of an injury. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a beautiful way of saying it. Yeah. So injury. And and, and, because a lot of the survivors that we, uh, I mean, most survivors actually have trauma and um, they're penalized for their symptoms in various institutional settings that don't understand trauma. Mm-hmm. Who basically don't like their symptoms. That's what it exactly. is. Exactly. Yeah. They don't like the symptoms. Yeah. And you know, really trauma is, is two things and we use one word to explain two things. So trauma is the assault, the injury, right? That is, that is a trauma. And then trauma is also what then happens to you on a bodily, psychological, emotional, and spiritual level, that continuation of the experience um, from the, the initial injury. And then that injury could then be aggravated, you know, by what we call secondary assaults of trauma. Mm-hmm. Like, and what that would look like is you know, a a very like traditional, um, classic example would be a woman who just experienced a sexual assault, let's say a rape to be more explicit, um, or specific. Uh, so she experiences a rape and then she goes to report that rape and the police officers are very impatient with her and say some sort of like victim, use some sort of victim blaming language, um, unbeknownst to them. And then that would be a secondary assault of trauma. Yeah. And I think also as a society, we don't, we don't define um, abuse as anything other than physical, or at least it's not really in our laws. And so, um, and even if it were to change, like it did in in Europe, in, in Great Britain, it still took years before the enforcement of coercive control as as a um, law, yeah, was was implemented effectively. I don't know that I would even use the word effectively now until apparently there was a, a radio show where, you know, the two, the co-hosts of the show were engaged in, in a uh, relationship that were was visibly kind of observed by the 
British population, and they were able to identify from that kind of really personal level of having invested in these two people and their relationship. But before that happened, there was still, you know, even though the law was in place, it, people didn't know how to implement it because there weren't yes. examples publicly. Yes, what what you're speaking to is uh, so true. And, um, and Judith Herman talks about this in um, her seminal work, Trauma and Recovery, and how um, movements are like inconvenient truths that are discovered was basically what you're talking about, about like, oh, there's coercion and there's psychological manipulation and there's these other expressions of abuse that like hasn't, that didn't have a language before for them, but were happening. When those inconvenient truths are discovered, if there is not a social and political like system in place, a, a container for that to hold these inconvenient truths, that they'll just go away. That they that um, they'll be suppressed, they'll be denied. There there's not support for that. Um, so part of like why um, it wasn't it, it, there was failed acknowledgement for these other forms of abuse is in large part is because can you imagine how many people would be implicated <laughs> like yeah, every yeah, you know to yeah. physical abuse is i guess rarer than emotional verbal mental yeah like, yeah you know, you know, and so and and yet like um so there's this famous feminist on twitter um, Mraz is her handle. Her name mm. is the feminist next door. So I follow yeah. her, and I and she's just you know very large following and an influence I think in teaching feminism um, by responding to everyday news items. Mm. Um, and one of the things that she posted recently was why she does that work, um, and she in her tweet briefly described the physical. Uh, violence that she suffered. She shared her quote, and then she uh, started the hashtag I am one. Yeah. Uh, and then I wrote, it's also every soul crushed and dream deferred and denied and hope vanquished. I am one. So this ties into Evan Stark's definition of coercive control as a liberty mm-hmm. crime. You know, not it's not what you have done unto you, but what you are um, keeping someone from doing for themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, and if you're engaged in a relationship where, for whatever reason, you know, a lot of the protective parents I've interviewed, myself included, you know, we are basically enslaved to the system and to to an abuser. Mm-hmm. And and the level of like daily um, tactics, you know, of mental anguish they create for us because of their their um, manipulation and coercion, um, especially if the you know children are involved. Mm-hmm. People just don't understand how debilitating it is. Yeah, and the punishment that gets exacted toward you for not following rules that you didn't even know existed. Yeah. Yeah, and then for speaking out, yeah, when you're when you're trying to call attention to it to to, to make changes, people don't like that <laughs> at all. Yeah. So I'm really happy that your perspective is about long-term healing uh, versus just dealing with a problem, and that you have this lens of the biopsychosocial perspective to really ground your clients in larger systemic issues. So actually, I want to 
uh, call your attention to the recent guidelines by the American Psychological Association regarding masculinity ideology. (laughs) I don't know if you've read the full document. It's 36 pages, very long. (laughs) But you've heard about it? No. No, you haven't? Okay, so in 2007, the American Psychological Association published a report about girls and women. And it's, it was similarly length, lengthy, um, and it talked about the, the ways in which girls and women are socialized you know, in their gender roles and how that impacts um, their mental and physical health. Mm-hmm. And then so in January of this year, they took them a long time, 12 years later, um, they published guidelines to help psychologists specifically addressing issues of men and boys. So I guess if you're treating your clients are men and boys. Um, Which I'm actually very male heavy right now. Oh, well, this this is a great, (laughs) great tool then. Um, So I'm reading from the, the report. Quote, traditional masculinity ideology has been shown to limit male psychological development, constrain their behavior, result in gender role strain, and gender role conflict, and negatively influence mental health and physical health. And the idea is um, that masculinity ideology is important to highlight because it represents a set of characteristics that are unhealthy for men, especially men who are sexist or violent or don't care, um, take care of themselves. And I, I also thought that it was really great that the report addresses power and privilege um, and how it can be used or misused. And so I just thought, wow, this is, I mean, first of all, they had a tool like this already for women, but now that they have it for men, to what extent are people actually using it, informing themselves of it, and, and applying the principles? Because mm. because this, is, this speaks squarely to patriarchy and the systemic issues that you were talking about at the beginning. And it doesn't seem like a lot of people that I work with have, um, that I've spoken to, have those discussions in their therapeutic sessions. You know, blaming, for example, the violence they experience on the patriarchal structures that enable the violence that they experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the women that I see, because I'm in the, you know, cultural milieu of New York City, tend to be, as the kids like to say, very woke and educated on patriarchy and you know, the, the long, the short-term and long-term effects of the patriarchy. Um, so they come in typically with that frame already. They, and they allow that to inform even how they share or the questions that they pose. You know, um, I find that currently in the room, the women I'm working with, it can very much feel like a feminist dialogue. Now, I tend to, I mean, I have a postmodern feminist perspective that guides my work, um, but they're bringing that. Um, In fact, one of my clients came in because of the Kavanaugh hearing. Um, she, She was aware of some of the sexual abuses that were made against her, um, prior, but there was one specific incident that she had that, you know, she labels as the gray, that if it were processed through the court of law, that it might not be seen as a sexually violent act. 
Um, but she knows like viscerally in her bones and, and I know, uh, when she described it to me that yes, that there was a non-consensual sexual moment that occurred and, um, that started out as consensual that then became non-consensual. Um, and that happens and that happens frequently. Um, and the fact that, you know, so like, she and I talk about like the thing, the, the, the gray, the, the, that is how we've termed it. And, and amongst my girlfriends and other clients and, and just women, when I sit down with women and we have conversations about this, it's like, if you have a moment where you're, you question like, what was that? What is that? The fact that like, we don't know what it is with that in of itself is a red flag that it was a violation, a violation of some kind. The fact that it is unclear to you as to why it didn't feel good, anything that's consensual, you know, um, it, like you just know. Um, and there is a difference between like a regrettable sexual act versus like, what was that? Versus something that's more uh, a violation, in other words. Yeah, a violation. The the what was that is the expression for a violation. <laughs> yes. And and so how how do these uh, clients that you work with process these experiences? Do they do they then articulate um, their their sort of lack of consent afterwards with these individuals? Or do they end the relationship? Or do they decide to do better in the next relationship? How do they process it? Well, that <laughs> I love how you use the word relationship um, because because most of these encounters are not within relationships oh, okay. and the, like and the and the term like of exclusive monogamous relationship. A lot of these encounters um, have occurred through casual dating, or you know, or maybe some sort of relationship was established, but not. You know, because, and again, like, I think, I wonder if, like, that, that thought also is undergirded in the fact that we're not really free as women to express ourselves sexually in that way. You know, like, we're not, the, the assumptions made, oh, it must have been in a relationship because women don't have, like, casual sex in that. No, no, I mean, you can still, I, I, I think that, um, there's consent can happen in any kind of situation um, yeah. of, of intimacy. You don't have to have met someone or known someone for a long time, but it's just a matter of how you define what makes you comfortable. And if even if you are going to meet someone casually for the first time, there could be a discussion yeah. that you're having before anything happens. Just yeah. or you can have ongoing, you know, consent being confirmed as well. And so it doesn't preclude based on how long you've known someone the opportunity that you can create yourself to reaffirm consent. Mm -hmm. And so yeah. I'm wondering, like, do they change? Do they change the, their behavior next time so that next time, if if they are going to be in that situation, they're actively like making sure that this these are my boundaries and maybe feeling more comfortable articulating that versus they you know now that they've had pro that experience recognizing what was uncomfortable for them well then i on some level then it puts the onus on them instead of really looking at the in this case it you know is a heterosexual exchange then putting 
the blame or the response responsibility is a better word responsibility back on the men to not sexually assault rather than looking at women like well what could I have done differently how could I how could how how can I prevent you know this from going down well I don't know when um I agreed to you know this one sexual behavior it did not mean I agreed with this so yeah it's up to you men to learn what ongoing consent means that it's assumed well because I liked this that I would want something further to happen um you know and and then that becomes a systemic issue because do we teach that in sex ed do they do kids I don't even know well first of all you know sex ed is state by state (laughs) and so not all states especially in the south bible thumping states yeah even teach that In fact, they're going out of their way to prevent it from being taught and instead having abstinence education instead. Right. So in the state of New York, I mean, is ongoing consent taught to fifth and sixth graders? No, it's not. And and people barely even know the enough is an enough law for New York State for amongst college students, Mm -hmm. you know, where it actually is where it applies, which brings me to an article that came out. Um, a few days ago in the Times by a writer, Peggy Orenstein, called It's Not That Men Don't Know What Consent Is. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I want to read something from the article. Um, she, she says, the truth is men are not the most reliable arbiters of whether sex was consensual. Um, and she talks, she shares, you know, a lot of uh, different anecdotes around um, people's experiences, but also s- cite studies um, around consent. And then she further says around this study, sociology study that was conducted in the University of Michigan, when they realized that that is the men, that their actions conflicted with that benchmark, um, which is benchmark of consent, or lack of consent, they expanded their definition definition of consent rather than question their conduct. Oh yeah, that's how they deal with cognitive dissonance. That's how cognitive dissonance is actually like mainly dealt with. Is we don't change the behavior, we change our definition of what that behavior means or what it is. Yeah. So what do we do with that? Yeah. How do we have a conversation? How do we prevent? Is there a, a way to minimize that? that that sort of um response yeah yeah i don't know i don't i don't i don't have the answer i'm sure they're much smarter i mean i know there are much smarter people than i but maybe they hold the answer it's interesting you know that you brought that article up too because i've had this thought with um a woman that's um that you also know a mutual friend or um maybe they're just an acquaintance of yours i don't know but um i was telling um aniri who you and i both know um that because because i don't drink you know i i um have been sober for over seven years and i said and and you should see men's faces when I go on first dates with them. Um, and then they, you know, the question, I feel like New York is very much an alcoholic city. And 
you know, the first question is, oh, do you want to grab a drink and yada, yada, yada. And so sometimes I'll just accompany them to the bar or whatever, if I'm up for it. And I'm like, oh, but I don't drink. And their face changes instantly. And I want to say, oh, don't worry. Like if I want to sleep with you, I will like, absolutely. Like it will happen. I'm horny too. And I like sex and I actually really like sober sex. It's incredibly empowering because I am conscious of this choice. I'm, I am really invested in my sexuality and my interest in you. And it should be an obvious compliment to you that I don't need to, you know, be drunk or not in my full right mind. To be impaired. To, to, yeah, to be impaired, to want to have sex with you. But what this article is saying, and my point that I'm drawing, the parallel I'm drawing from this article, is that men on some level like for women to be impaired, that they don't act, that, that it's somewhat of a turn on that they aren't consenting, that they are getting to act out some sort of sick fantasy of power and dominance over my body and my sexuality, that they're actually running from the hills for me because they don't want to have sex with me because I am in my best judgment. Well, speaking of um, being impaired, there, there's another study that this article cites, a 2016 study, researchers at Confi, an online resource dedicated to women's health issues. Um, and basically, they asked 1,200 college students and recent graduates what they would expect to happen next, quote unquote, if they went home with someone whom they met and danced with at a party. And according to the survey, men found that the actions of a quote-unquote tipsy guy much more acceptable than a sober one, meaning they let themselves off the hook for potential sexual aggression, even as female assault victims who drink are blamed. Um, because they're, they're also in the same study um, engaging in denials of responsibility um, when consent is withheld. And so there's this, like you were saying earlier, cognitive dissonance where if someone is under the influence of alcohol and it's the man, the aggressor, it's okay. But if it's the female, the, Mm -hmm. the, the assault victim, then she's blamed. Right. So that double standard shows up, which I guess brings me to the, just the general premise of the article around the concept of good people can do bad things. Mm. And, and that because as a society, we tend to label people monsters black and white, you know, all these celebrities who are in the news around their sexual assault and, and um, other kinds of behaviors, that's over there and not over here. And then we're not able to reconcile that good people can engage in bad behaviors. And I would actually argue why does it have to be good? People can be gray. <laughs> Why, you know, it doesn't ha- have to be black and white mm. um, where you're good or bad. You can just be gray like you were talking earlier. The situation could be gray, but the person can be gray. And because of that, because they're not actively moving themselves towards values and a set of behaviors that are actually, you know, good, <laughs> then they're more likely to be drawn and let themselves accept and or create excuses for their behaviors mm-hmm. when they're yeah, in violation. Yeah, humans tend to rationalize or justify their unsavory behaviors all the time. That's just, it's kind of human. I don't know that that makes us bad people, like to your point. 
So you are you you think it's okay, kind of? Yeah. To, I'm just curious. No, what is what is your response to the, to that characterization? Is that keeping society from better able to better able to confront these situations when they show up because we have this very bifurcated perspective on that you're good or good bad. bad? Yeah. Well, I don't think I don't think any person is good or bad. I think we're complicated people. Um, I don't like those terms, even good or bad. Um, I think we, you know, engage in more optimal, healthy, higher conscious, higher aligned behaviors at times, and then at times we don't. I don't. But how do you reconcile? How do you make sense of people? Oh, I think the question. Like how I'm hearing the question is coming down to like it's a social control question. Like how do we regulate human behavior? How do we hold people accountable for things that they do um, that are harmful? And in order to hold people accountable for that in this country, and in and I I, I don't I'm I'm assuming it's done elsewhere. I've never lived elsewhere, so I don't really know. But that in order to enact some sort of like retribution payment for harm caused, they have to be, then be labeled bad. Or I, I don't know. I don't know why we have the labeling. Do you think that the, this kind of mindset impacts the healing and recovery of the clients you work with or whatever mindset they have with regard to how they characterize their experiences? Like you're asking, does does labeling a person as good or bad help a client in their healing? Or not help. Or not help. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh, this is, this, I feel like in order to answer this, it's not going to be a cogent delivery. Um, and it's a dynamic question, actually, which demands... A rather thorough answer. So, when a client conceives of themselves as good or bad, that's very unhelpful. Okay. Okay. Um, when a client has had a harm acted against them, in order for them to heal initially, it's helpful to conceive of that person as good or bad, especially in a DV situation um, or when there's been a sexual assault to move away from, um, especially you know, as, as you know, working in um, the sphere of domestic violence, um, there's a tendency to, to keep going back. And in order to move away, it's helpful for that person to conceive of them as somebody who's never going to change. And that behavior will just always will be persistent. And so the label bad can then be placed upon the perpetrator. And that can be really helpful to like, okay, they're sick. They're suffering. That's never changing. They're a terrible person. And they're only interested in exacting harm against me. So that's helpful in that way. Now for deeper healing, I would say, which comes later, um, is to look at people as complex beings. And so even as a therapist uh, in my work, um, if I to, to look at a, a, per, a perpetrator of harm is instead of like, what's wrong with you is what happened to you? Like what happened to you in order for you 
to do this to somebody else and to look at them as being a victim because most likely they were. Um, most likely they experienced physical abuses and the forms of, you know, just sexual assault or physical injury or, you know, mental, psychological abuse, emotional. Um, like, what environment did you grow up in to engender the type of human that you are? So that brings me to I don't know a if pilot. I'm answering your question. No, I do, but. <laughs> But I, that brings me to a pilot that New York City is um, launching with a few agencies, two nonprofits. Mm-hmm. And according to the, the powers that be, I'm not exactly sure who was involved in conceiving of this, these pro, the program, if it was an individual or a group of um, agencies that came together, but there was research that was done around the trauma of the abuser yeah and um and then they interviewed some survivors who it wasn't clear if they were still in the midst of their um you know of of harm or potentially like have left the relationship and they were looking back from a longer term perspective Mm -hmm. um but i think it was the former because a lot of them said um they wanted to be able to have tangible means to work with the abuser in their life um the survivors yeah 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 and so the the pilot is basically having survivors and abusers and maybe children if they have children all be served by a an agency that works on intimate partner violence Mm -hmm. and in in some ways have therapy and so some of the survivors have stated um, I wish I could have therapy. If, I, if only I had therapy, then you know, then we would be able to address these issues. Therapy together. Yeah. Well, no. I, I mean, I'm not suggesting that at all. Um, as we were talking earlier, you know that that is not best practice at all clinically to have a, an aggressor work with, you know, um, a victim, a survivor. Um, no, that is not what I'm saying. I, but what I am saying is that services need to be provided, and there are services. I just I don't know where they are in New York. I'm a fairly new resident to New York. I'm from Florida, um, and I did some DV work down there. But um, the 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 batterer, the abuser, they need therapy. They they need resources being, you know, channeled to them. Um, for their for their healing i mean they they are suffering people they are sick people so i guess you know I when i when i change mean. when i change the social construct from gender to race mm-hmm. um so if, you know abusers are basically exerting power and control because of their male supremacy you know yes. in, in that in that context of a gendered violence um context um so if we were to imagine a white supremacist, a KKK member, or a Nazi supporting person, mm-hmm. you know, being recommended therapy to deal with their racism, that doesn't seem really feasible. It, <laughs> I don't, I, I don't, it, I can't it, imagine. It, it doesn't seem feasible, but I hope we live in a world one day where that's there. They need, I, I, I would, you know, therapy is there to help induce a psychic change, a personality change. These people are in need of that. 
but then it goes because they enact the violence. Right. So it goes back to the original question we we started with: is the difference between a social worker and other forms of therapist? Mm-hmm. If you're going to a psychiatrist or a psychologist mm-hmm. who doesn't have that social justice perspective and lens, and they don't see systemic racism and oppression, and they may actually support this person's opinions and beliefs like you don't so then then you don't have the ability to interrogate where they came from yeah right yeah so what do you do i don't know make everybody a social worker (laughs) 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 i i think it i think that the uh the pedagogy of the other schools of thought need to change perhaps i i don't know well, I think that's a great place for us to conclude. Um, before we go, I always ask my guests the engendered questionnaire. I adapted it from Inside Their Actor Studio, James Lipton's questionnaire. So, first question What is at stake in the struggle to end gender based violence and oppression? What's at stake to end the struggle? Well, I'll just, I'll say what came to me immediately. Well, is that male domination and power, they're going to have to be willing to give up their power, the power that they hold. What gives you hope? Hmm. Basic human kindness. I see it every day in this city. And final question. What can we do more of, less of, start or stop in the struggle to end gender-based violence? Oh man, what can we do more of? Well, we could start first by doing more of cultivating as, as for men when they're young boys, we can help them um, cultivate their emotional literacy for one. We could do more of that for sure. We can do less of training women to and rewarding them for being um, obsequious and submissive, less of teaching them what it, how to be quote unquote polite. We could, I think it goes back again, we can start by helping young boys um, like raise their desire for help seeking. And then what should we stop? I mean, there's so many things to stop. Um, What's one that's true for me that really speaks to my heart? We can stop trying to locate problems within the individual and start locating them in the greater context. I don't know, that's so trite, but that's what what I have. Those are great. Thank you so much, James. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure and I look forward to continuing our conversation. Yeah, it was fun. Thanks for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by Can Do It Q&A, a peer-based knowledge platform that connects social service providers in advice, community, and learning. You can join Can Do It Q&A for free at qna.kanduit.com. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions.